Thanks so much, Nick and uh, Paul. I know he's out of town this morning for the invitation. It really is a joy to be uh, with all of you this morning and uh, be in Sandwich, Illinois. I mean, coming from Joliet and driving uh, through the country roads, it really is, uh, maybe for you guys, if you're, if you're used to it, boring, but for us, it's beautiful out here. And so um, my family, uh, who's here with me today, my wife Susan and our four kids, we loved uh, the drive out. So thanks again for having us. Uh, if you have a Bible with you this morning, would you get it out, please, and turn over to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 35 through 45, Mark 10, 35 through 45, and uh, as you're turning over to Mark chapter 10, I want to begin our time with a question, and that question is this, uh, what is true greatness? What is true greatness? If you right now were to call to mind someone uh, who you think is great, who would that person be? Um, I've uh, thought of four, uh, perhaps, that may have crossed your mind. Uh, the first one here, you'll see a picture of him up on the screen, uh, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was Rookie of the Year, a five-time MVP, six-time NBA champion, a six-time Finals MVP, and a 14-time All-Star, uh, undoubtedly and indisputably the greatest basketball player of all time. Uh, to that, we say LeBron who, right? Um, Michael Jordan, uh, certainly within the realm of basketball, is likely to be viewed as great. The next picture is that of Katherine Hepburn. Katherine Hepburn was a 12-time Academy Award nominee. Uh, she won the Oscar for Best Act Actress pardon me, four times. Uh, that's more than any other actor or actress in history. And so within the realm of acting, certainly Katherine Hepburn's name would be at the top of the list as it relates to greatness. The next one might be a little lesser known, uh, but Itzhak Perlman. Uh, Itzhak Perlman is a world-class violinist. He's performed with every major orchestra. Uh, the Kennedy Center, he's won the Kennedy Center Honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and the National Medal of Arts, uh, and as well as the Medal of Liberty. Um, Itzhak Perlman is a great violinist. And finally, uh, Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps is the most decorated Olympian of all time, winning 28 medals between the years of 2004 and 2016. Uh, he also currently holds the 400-meter individual medley record uh, in, the uh, pardon me, in the world of swimming and Olympics. Michael Phelps undoubtedly uh, is great. Um, we're going to look to a text here in Mark chapter 10 that perhaps will challenge our understanding of what it does in fact mean to be great. Doesn't take away from the accolades that these people um, have, have uh, earned for themselves over the course of their life. But we wanna look to Jesus, we wanna look to God's word and answer this question, what is true greatness? And so would you join me in a word of prayer before we go any further this morning? Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the grace and goodness of your word. Father, we thank you for Jesus who by his work, his life, death, and resurrection has saved us from our sins if we have placed our faith, our belief, our trust in him. So Father, we come before you this morning in Jesus' name asking in faith that you would answer the promise that you've declared in your word that when it goes out, it doesn't return to you without accomplishing first the purpose for which you sent it. And so, Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit and that he would be our teacher. 
Father, and that by spending this time gazing upon Jesus in your word, that we would leave here with our minds washed and renewed, our lives more conformed to the image of Jesus for your glory, that we would adore him and worship him and know him greater for having spent this time in your word. So we trust that to you and we pray that all in Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Um, And uh, it's always important to know when we come to Scripture where we are, uh, to get a context of the passage that we are in. And if we're going to understand the text rightly, we need to know what's going on in the text so that we may then apply the text properly and accurately. So I would ask if you would, back up to verse 32, and that's where we're going to begin reading this morning. Mark chapter 10, verse 32, God's Word says, Um, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was about 2,500 feet above sea level. And so as Jesus and the disciples traveled from the coasts of Judea, they would have been traveling up to the city. They were going up to Jerusalem. The text goes on to say, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Um, The disciples, having heard from Jesus the predictions of his impending suffering and death, were astonished by his determination to continue toward Jerusalem, while many others who followed hearing these same predictions were likely fearful that perhaps a similar fate uh, may await them as well. Those who followed were afraid, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus there predicting what would happen to him as he arrived in Jerusalem. Actually, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection three times in Mark's gospel, Um, In chapter 8, verse 31, in chapter 9, verses 30 and 32, and here in chapter 11, in verses 33 and 34. And so this brings us now to our passage this morning in verse 35, and we begin here in verse 35, reading uh, of James and John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, James and John were actually a part of Jesus' inner circle along with Peter. Uh, of the 12 disciples, these three, Peter, James, and John, were closest to Jesus and present at key moments within his ministry. Actually, in Mark chapter 5, at the healing of Jairus' daughter, the text says that he took with him only Peter, James, and John. In Mark 9, only Peter, James, and John were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration where he unveiled the fullness of his glory. And in Mark 14, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he took Peter, James, and John further into the garden than the other disciples and told them of the great anguish that he was facing. And of Peter, pardon me, of James and John, here in the text, we get another detail, and it says this, they were the sons of Zebedee. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, like what, what's with that? Why, why is that detail important? Um, kind of weird, but understand this, totally Intentional. You see, the Gospels were written in order to be verified. Um, It would be like saying um, Kevin and Mark, Mark is my brother, are the sons of Mike Fisk. 
Um, Kevin and Mark in our day are rather common names. James and John in Jesus' day were rather common names. And so as this gospel was being circulated, it was important for people to be able to go to the eyewitnesses and say, what we've read about you here, is it true? And so if you were to just say, well, I don't know, go check with James and John. Like, which James and John? Well, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Mark wrote his gospel in order to be verified. We get these details in scripture so that as the letters were circulated, the details that they spoke of could in fact be validated. So we have James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Um, They've got a request for Jesus and um, they go straight forward here. Look at the text here in verse 37. Actually back up. Um, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, verse 35, going to 37, they came up to him and they said to him, teacher, what, or we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant to us to sit uh, at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. James and John are not shy. Um, they're not ambiguous. Uh, they're not, it's not even really a request. It's more of a demand Um, And that's where we get our first point, Uh, and it's this. Number one, greatness is desired by many. Greatness is desired by many. James and John, aware of the predictions of Jesus' death and resurrection, are looking at this trip to Jerusalem as perhaps their last opportunity to get their requests in. And totally overlooking the suffering that Jesus would endure, they have their eyes set on his glorious reign, and they want in on that. You see, at royal banquets, the positions of highest honor were to the left and right of the king, and that's what these brothers want for themselves. They want those premier positions. But listen, so many of their desires are really the same desires that we go after as well. So-called greatness, uh, as it's pursued today, is actually often characterized by what I've written down here as the five Ps of worldly greatness. As these disciples wanted premier positions, um, greatness in the eyes of the world is often understood in relation to these categories. Number one, power. Power. The more power I have, the greater I will be. Really what the person is after is control. Um, If I can rise to positions of greater power, I will have more control and more power and control will make me great in my own eyes and also then in the eyes of many. Many perceive power in relation, or greatness, pardon me, in relation to power. Many also perceive greatness in relation to position. That's the second P, power and then position. I'm great because of the title or the position that I have within some structure. The higher my position in this company or on this board or in this association, the more authority I possess and that determines then my greatness. I will be great if I can just have more authority. Power, position, and thirdly this, prominence. I'm great because of how many people know me. I'm great because of how many people I influence. In fact, there's an entire industry right now built on helping people become influencers. The larger I can grow my platform, the more followers I can have on social media, the more people that know who I am, that determines my greatness or perhaps lack thereof. Power, position, prominence, the five Ps of worldly greatness. Number four, possessions. 
I'm great because of what I own. I feel a sense of superiority if what I own is better than what those around me own. You see, I'm constantly comparing my stuff to the stuff of others, and if I win that comparison, then I must be greater than they are. Power, position, prominence, possessions, and finally this, prestige. I'm great because of what I've accomplished. Many accolades will make me great. The four people that we looked at at the beginning of the message, I noted all of their accolades because we're so often uh, used to looking to what people have accomplished and saying if they've done much, they must then be great. You see, James and John here in the text, they want power. They want position. They want prominence. They want prestige. And Jesus is going to begin now to correct their notions of greatness and completely reorient their perspective on what greatness truly is. And that brings us to our second point this morning. It's this. The path to greatness is often misunderstood. The path to greatness is often misunderstood. Look with me at verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Cup and baptism. Um, The imagery of cup and baptism are often used in scripture to illustrate wrath, judgment, and suffering. As a matter of fact, Psalm 75, 8 Isaiah 51, 17 and 22, and Jeremiah 25, 15 and following all refer to the cup as a picture of divine wrath and judgment. Genesis 6 and 1 Peter 3, 19 through 21 relate baptism as well to judgment. So what is Jesus getting at here in the text when he refers to the cup that he will drink or the baptism that he will experience? Um, Remember, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. We read in Mark 14, 36, where Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Luke tells us actually in chapter 22, verse 44, that Jesus that night sweat drops of blood because of the stress and anguish he experienced in relation to the cup. Jesus actually experienced what doctors call hematohydrosis. It's where the capillaries that surround the sweat glands, they rupture due to stress. And blood then is expelled through the pores in response uh, to the person's anguish. It comes out through the person's skin. And Jesus knew that he would endure the full brunt of God's righteous fury against the sin of his people. And it caused him immense anguish. Jesus would absorb or propitiate the wrath of God for his people. Listen, and this is good news. If you are in Christ, you no longer have to fear the wrath of God because Jesus drank that cup of God's wrath for you in your place. In terms of God's wrath, the cup is empty for you if you are in Christ. Um, It's worth noting, as we sang of the gospel this morning, that in fact, the good news of the gospel really is that we have been saved by God. And maybe strangely so, we've even been saved from God. 
You see, because of our sin, we deserve God's wrath. We deserve his judgment. And the the prospect of that wrath pictured in the cup caused the very son of God to sweat drops of blood, knowing that God's righteous and good fury would be properly directed at him, propitiating his wrath against the sin of his people. And if you are in Christ, God's wrath has been taken away from you through what Jesus has done. We've been saved by God, from God, and for God. In view of that good news, now we are free to joyfully worship and serve God, knowing that Jesus has accomplished everything that is necessary to be made right with God. He has done that in the place of his people. And if you are in Christ, you no longer have to fear the cup of God's wrath. But I would say this soberly to you this morning. If you're not in Christ... I would urge you to turn from your sin and trust in him today. You see, the Bible tells us that a day is coming when Jesus will return. And Revelation 19.15 says that he, that's Christ, will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Flee to Christ as your Savior today so you will not have to eventually encounter him as a righteously furious judge Believe in him that he drank the cup of God's wrath so you don't have to. And so after Jesus tells them about the road that lies before him, one marked with the cup and baptism of suffering and judgment, look at the response of the disciples here in verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. Um, Like, if that's not the ultimate facepalm, I don't know what is. You see, um, they're still so focused on the prospect of greatness that they fail to actually consider the cost. And so much of our world today and even our own hearts are prone to the same way of thinking. You see, we want all of the reward without any of the responsibility. We want all of the leisure without any of the labor. We want all of the privilege without any of the payment. And James and John here are like, yeah, whatever, we can do it. We promise, just, just promise us those positions. And Jesus follows in 39 by saying this, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Obviously not precisely in the same way, but what Jesus is getting at is that the path of discipleship will be marked with suffering, trial, and judgment. You see, the Christian life is not without suffering. But the good news is is that we have a high priest who sympathizes with us because he himself has suffered more greatly than any of us can possibly imagine. And he remains with us in this life through suffering, We aren't alone in this life when trial comes because we have a Savior who is faithful and compassionate and with us today through his Spirit. And so coming now to verse 40, Jesus finally answers the demand of James and John and look what he says here in verse 40. Follow along. He says, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus says that those positions of honor are not for him to promise in the moment, but are for those for whom they've been prepared in the eternal counsel of God. But what he can promise them in this moment 
is that suffering is inevitable and that it certainly is a part of the road of discipleship. And so as we continue moving forward in the text, we come to our third point, and it is this. Greatness is desired by many. The path to greatness is often misunderstood. And number three, the prospect of greatness often causes conflict. Notice I put there greatness in quotes. The prospect of of greatness often causes conflict. Verse 41 says, and when the 10 heard it, those are the other disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. And while we would like to think the best here and what they're upset about is the fact that they've been completely insensitive to the suffering that Jesus is about to endure, but that's in fact not what is happening in the text. Actually, um, what's happening here is that the disciples overhear this conversation and they're filled with jealousy uh, when they realize that they have missed out on perhaps their own opportunity. Uh, James and John beat them to the punch and and the rest of the disciples now are ticked. And so for the disciples, um, this behavior revolves around a complete misunderstanding of what greatness is. You see, for them and often for us, greatness is all about me. And when greatness is all about me, we tend to become angry, jealous, indignant, or bitter when others rise to levels or are granted opportunities or acquire possessions we wish we had or we believe that we deserve. Jesus is now going to get really clear on what true greatness is what kingdom greatness really looks like. And that brings us to our last point. Um, True greatness requires clarification. True greatness requires clarification. Um, Follow as I read in verse 42. Jesus called to them, pardon me, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In verse 42, Jesus summarizes the basic quality of worldly greatness and its harsh, oppressive power, basically saying that the unbelieving world equates greatness with authority, power, and influence, and that influence often oppressive in nature, an oppressive influence over other people. And Jesus is saying, my disciples, my people, I want to show you a better way. And we find that better way here, true kingdom greatness in verses 43 through 45. And they can be summarized in this way. The three marks of true greatness. The three marks of true greatness. I'll go back again to verse 43, noting this, the first mark, service. Service. Look again with me at verse 43. He says, it shall not be so among you, that harsh, oppressive greatness or authority But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Your servant. The word there for servant in the text is actually diakonos. Um, We get both the word deacon. Uh, I know there are deacons in this church who serve uh, the people uh, through acts of mercy and and probably stewardship in some other capacities as well. 
Um, but the word deacon actually carries along with it the, the idea or the picture of being a table waiter. And so you think about going to a restaurant and, and, and you order a burger and, and you told the waiter or the waitress, um, I'll take it medium well and, and please, no mustard. And they bring the burger to you and it's very pink and there's mustard and no ketchup. And so you, you look at the waiter or the waitress and say, I, yeah, I ordered it um, medium well and, and with no mustard, there's a ton of mustard and it's pink. And, and, and as a table waiter, their responsibility in that moment is not to have an argument with you or not to say, wait a minute, like I brought you the food, just be thankful, just have it and be done with it. Um, no, they take it and they do whatever they can in that moment to make it right. And that is to be our posture as God's people. We are waiting the tables of our neighbors and things that might seem perhaps annoying or, or, or even inconvenient are not to be viewed as such. If, if they forget the ramekin of ketchup, it's their duty to take the order back to the kitchen and go get you a little ramekin of ketchup as a waiter or a waitress. And we as God's people are called to be table waiters or waitresses for those around us. That is one of the marks of kingdom greatness. And, and we have to ask ourselves, is that my perspective? Am I looking for opportunities to wait on the tables of those around me? Or do I presume on my own schedule, my own desires, my own preferences, my own rights first and foremost. You see, I'm not only to look to my own needs, but also to the interest of others, Paul says in Philippians. And I can do that because he also says that we have that mind in Christ Jesus. If we are Christians, we should be embodying that first mark of true kingdom greatness and its service. Service. The second mark of true kingdom greatness is this in verse 44, selflessness. Selflessness, verse 44. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That is, I'm voluntarily going to give up my perceived rights for the good of others. I'm going to put their needs before my own. Love in Scripture is often categorized in that way, pictured or explained in that way, putting the needs of others before me or living with a posture that says, you before me. And if we're going to be great according to the Scriptures, according to what Jesus is calling to, our lives must be marked by both service and selflessness. And finally, this in verse 45, sacrifice, sacrifice. Verse 45 says, for even the son of man came not to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, the disciples um, would likely be very familiar with the title that Jesus uses of himself there, son of man, coming from Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. And, and in that is a prophecy of the Son, the eternal Son of God coming to the Father, of the Ancient of Days. And the Son of Man, Jesus, the Son of God, comes and is granted an everlasting dominion. And in view of that, it would be one thing if Jesus, God the Son, had come to earth and, and when he entered into our world, wherever he went, said, do you not know who I am? Do you not know my title? Do you not know my power? Do you not know my position on your face before me? 
But Jesus says, even, those th- even though those things are true of me, that I am the Son of God, that I have an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting dominion, I, in fact, did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Service, selflessness, and sacrifice. Do those marks of true greatness characterize our lives as followers of Christ? Are we repenting of the desire for power, prestige, prominence, possessions? And are we moving by God's grace toward lives of service, selflessness, and sacrifice? Because if we're going to answer our question this morning, what is true greatness? According to God's word, it is not found in ultimate power, position, possessions, or prestige. It's found in selflessness, service, and sacrifice. And as I close this morning, in view of the gospel, I want to see how the gospel, how Jesus reorients in the fullest way our concept of greatness in this life. So just a few statements here as we close. When the world defines greatness by how powerful we are, the gospel frees us to pursue kingdom greatness by living humbly in the wake of how powerful Christ was for us. When the world defines greatness by our position, the gospel frees us to pursue kingdom greatness by taking the position of a servant because the finished work of Christ has secured our eternal position before God the Father. When the world defines greatness by our prominence, The gospel frees us to be great by being small because in Christ, the creator of all things has set his love upon us. When the world defines greatness by what we possess, the gospel frees us to be greatly generous because in Christ, we have all that we truly need. When the world defines greatness by what we've attained, the gospel frees us to be sacrificially giving to others because Jesus has already attained all that we need before the Father. And finally this, when the world defines greatness by our prestige, the gospel frees us to pursue kingdom greatness by reveling in the successes of Christ, not our own. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness toward us in Christ Jesus. I pray, Father, now that by your Spirit, you would convict us concerning sin where we have not measured up to your word. And Lord God, help us to understand that the conviction of sin in our life by your Spirit is in fact a gift of grace. It is not condemning in nature, but Lord, causes us to move forward in holiness, to be conformed more fully to the image of your Son, which you predestined as the will that you have for us from before the foundation of the world. So Father, show us by your spirit and through your word how we need to change. But Jesus also promised us, Father, that the ministry of the spirit is not only to convict us concerning sin, but also righteousness. Remind us this morning, Father, that we are righteous 
because of Jesus, not because of ourselves. That the righteousness we need to stand before you has been given to us by grace through faith in Christ. He has taken all of our sin and as a gift, we've been credited with his very righteousness. So Lord, remind us by your spirit that if we are in Christ, all of the righteousness that we need is already ours because of what Jesus has done. And Lord, fill us now for another week of service unto you that as we scatter from this place, Lord, we would live lives that are characterized by service, by selflessness, and by sacrifice, and that by doing so, our lives would point to you, that we would be able to do that not because of our own strength, but we would do it in the strength of the Lord, as the scripture says. So we thank you. Thank you for the gift of your word. May our minds be washed and renewed, and I pray that it has in fact accomplished that for which you sent it. For we prayed in Jesus' name, amen.